Meet Jill. Jill is on a hormone roller coaster and has not felt herself in over three years. She's always had a fairly regular cycle, but about three years ago, she noticed her cycle started to shift and it would come every three weeks and became very heavy with much more PMS. This was not fun, but she suffered through it. A year later, she started to skip cycles and along with that came the terrible hot flashes. She figured she was in perimenopause and went to see her gynecologist to confirm this. They ran blood work and her doctor said her hormones were in fact low, but the doctor didn't offer much of a solution and said that the flashes would eventually pass. She was okay to wait and got used to sweating at night and many times throughout the day. However, she got more concerned when she started to experience a lot of brain fog, issues concentrating and feeling much more forgetful. She would walk into a room for something and then completely forget why she was there. And often she just felt like she was in a daze. It was hard to focus at work and this was not okay for her as she prided herself on being super sharp and efficient with everything that she did. She was also having trouble sleeping and didn't know if the brain fog was related to that or the other way around. She saw her primary again, but was not offered much of a solution again, and her doctor just blamed it on getting older. How frustrating. She could not figure out why she was feeling this way, which is when she saw me. After taking her history and looking at her labs, I saw her declining hormones. While it may seem mysterious, symptoms of perimenopause can really spam across the board and what she was experiencing was for sure part of it. It is also important to know that as hormones decline, they're going to affect many other organs, including the thyroid, and we can often see elevations in TSH. And perimenopause and menopause can also trigger autoimmunity like Hashimoto's or other autoimmune diseases. As we got into more of her symptoms, she also mentioned she was feeling dry all over. Her skin was getting dry and many more wrinkles appeared almost, it seems like overnight. Her mood was also on and off and she was feeling down a lot. Now, many of these are thyroid related symptoms, but was thyroid the driving force here? My thought was that it was actually secondary and hormones were really driving this. Jill felt relieved to know that this was all related but she was confused about the right approach to resolve it. Should she use hormones? Are they really safe? What kinds are best and what was right for her? I knew exactly where to look and how we can work with her doctor to help support her naturally and resolve her symptoms. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated undermined and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard all about Jill's hormone imbalances and how much it affected everything in her body and her life. Joining me today to talk much more about this is Jim Hernser. He is actually recognized as one of the pioneers of modern pharmaceutical compounding. 
Jim is responsible for the formulation of many bioidentical hormones, as well as dermatological, nutritional, and anti-aging compounds that are widely used throughout the U.S. And he is passionate about the benefits of pharmaceutical compounding and what that can bring to patients. And like many of my guests, he's been featured in all types of publications. Jim, I am so happy to have you. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Ina. Of course. And when it comes to female hormones, the story is quite complex. There are so many angles and also so many points of view. But because of this, there's so much confusion. And with that also comes a lot of misinformation. So I'm really excited to dig in so we can clear this up and give my listener the details that I know they need. Now, first, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, what is the difference between hormones that someone would get, say, from their conventional gynecologist and compounded bioidentical hormones? That's a great question to start with. You know, um, most of my friends are doctors and they're traditional doctors, not integrative medicine doctors. And so they have a belief system in manufactured medicines. Therefore, they come out of school and they continue in their practice to prescribe traditional manufactured hormones. Well, we know that those traditional manufactured hormones are really helpful to a lot of patients, but it's interesting that over 50% of women and men in the United States are choosing customized compounded bioidentical hormones. Now, that's a big number. That's over 8 million people. And you think, okay, what is the difference? And the difference is, is that these hormones are exactly the same structure as the hormones that your body's been making your whole life. And that just makes sense to me. Long before I knew about the science, I just felt like that the hormones that we came to this dance with, that nature, God provided, are the hormones that are the best for us. So then in terms of benefits of bioidenticals versus synthetic, do you find that there are more benefits then? Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk more about risk later, but I can tell you that the bioidenticals, I think, represent the highest level of protection for women. There's no way that we can guarantee that nothing bad is going to happen to a woman or a man on hormones. However, we know that if we're using the same hormones that your body's been making your whole life, then it just makes sense that that's going to be our best protection. Got it. Now, in terms of how the body sees it when it goes in, does the body see the bioidenticals really the same as their own versus does it see the synthetic ones differently? Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine going into a, any door and trying to stick a key in and unlock it and it just doesn't work because the key does not match that lock? Well, these hormones, these bioidentical hormones are the exact keys that match the exact locks in our body, which are called receptor sites. Hormones have to work at receptor sites. Every cell in your body has receptor sites for hormones, and these hormones match the receptor sites perfectly. Now, we can sometimes manhandle um, a synthetic hormone, which is not really a hormone, it's a drug with hormonal activity, but these these manufactured drugs, we can sometimes get them to activate the receptor site, but it is a challenge and there's going to be different effects and different side effects. According to the guy who wrote the gynecological textbook on endocrinology, Dr. Spiroff, you know, he actually says that, that if, uh, if you change the structure of a bioidentical hormone, it no longer is a hormone, it's a drug with different effects and different side effects. So, I mean, that's right out of the textbook in med school. Okay. Yeah, and that's really important to know. And what about the detoxification of hormones? 
people may not realize, but because we produce hormones, you know, typically every day, the body has to then metabolize and detoxify them. And so whether it's our own hormones or other hormones, we have to make sure that they're leaving the body properly. Are the detox pathways similar from the bioidentical hormones and with more of the synthetic hormones? Or are there different levels of that? Well, the pathways of detoxification um, are not the same. And I can tell you that we can reduce risk, for instance, by using a transdermal estrogen versus an oral estrogen. Um, if we use Premarin, which is pregnant mare's urine, that's, that's they collect the urine of pregnant horses, mares, and then dry it into a pill. That's Premarin, which was the number one drug in the world uh, prior to 2002, by the way. Um, it takes the body 21 days to actually uh, metabolize and break down a Premarin. Uh, because there's so many different compounds in horse estrogen that are different from human estrogen, the body is just spiraling, trying to figure out how to detoxify and break down those weird hormones that are not natural to the human body. Okay, so I'm just going to have you repeat that one more time because I don't think that people know this. So Premarin is estrogen from horse's urine? Right. <laughs> they have these horses sitting on, on metal grates. They're pregnant. And their urine contains high amounts of estrogen. And so they collect the estrogen, they dry it into a powder, put it into a tablet, and that is what Premarin is. And again, it was the number one drug in the world prior to 2002. Okay. I, people can't see me, but I literally, I'm sitting here with my mouth open. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. But then when you think about it, you know, the fact that it takes the body 21 days to break down these different types of estrogens, that just freaks me out because... Our body is not designed to operate that way. It's designed to operate on the the true estrogens that uh, that our body is making our whole life, the bioidentical hormones. Yeah. Now, for our natural hormones, whether they're our own hormones or the bioidentical ones, how is the detox process there? How many days does that typically take? It takes hours. Uh, matter of fact, um, when we use transdermal estrogen that's a bioidentical, we usually recommend that it be used twice a day because the levels start dropping by the evening. Therefore, we're going to have them use it twice a day to maintain a steady state blood level, you know, or, or I should say body level because it's not just about the blood. It's about the entire body. Testosterone is metabolized a little slower, but it, it's we use it at least once a day. Progesterone is metabolized quickly. We put it in time-release capsules as an example to extend the release of the progesterone because it is, again, um, since it's a natural compound in the body, the body recognizes it, the body is used to metabolizing it and bio-deactivating it, then why not? Let's just go ahead and, and uh, give it um, daily or even twice daily if we need to in order to maintain proper levels in the body. That's great to know. Now, before we get to exactly how we use them in the protocols, let's just jump a little bit to risks, only because we're talking about detoxification. And we can see that some hormones take a lot longer to detoxify than others, depending on how they're made. So does that have anything to do with the risk? Because we do hear hormones can cause potentially breast cancer or blood clots. And, you know, there's so many different things and people are often really scared about this. Is this true? Um, are these myths? What do the studies really say? This is a huge topic. Um, I can tell you that, uh, that when we use oral estrogen, even if we use bioidentical estrogen, uh, estradiol being the most potent of the three 
human estrogens. When we take it orally, we have proven that estradiol is metabolized through a pathway that is riskier for women than if they take use it transdermally. And uh, the estrogen is metabolized through, um, unfortunately, um, estrone, and estrone is then converted to 2-hydroxyestrone, which is a protective estrogen. But when you would take it orally, it's more converted to 4 and 16-alpha-hydroxyestrone, and nobody needs to remember those. I'm not going to test you on this. <laughs> but those are risky metabolites. And when we use transdermal, we get much more conversion to the protective metabolite 2-hydroxyestrone. And so if you take anything away from that conversation, just understand that on estrogen, it actually is safer to use it transdermally through the skin. Whereas if we use progesterone, progesterone is better orally because it uh, is metabolized into a very cool metabolite, allopregnenolone. And allopregnenolone hits GABA receptors and makes women feel more calm. They sleep better. They have less anxiety. And so it depends on the hormone as to how we use it. And, you know, that makes sense, too, because progesterone often is recommended to take at night, so it makes sense that it would be relaxing. Now, I want to go back just for a second to what you were saying about the estrogen metabolites, and we do talk about this a little bit on the show with the 2-hydroxy, the 4, and the 16, and with the 4 being kind of the more, you know, you never want to say good or bad, but the more, quote-unquote, I guess, bad estrogen because it can lead to certain free radicals and a lot of other things down the line. So you're saying that when you're giving estrogen orally, you're seeing more conversion to the 4 and the 16 versus the transdermal, you're seeing more of the 2-hydroxy. Is that correct? Correct. And and that just represents, and every little help that I can give to my patients to decrease their risk, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and I don't want to um, scare women from using oral because oral is better than nothing. It's so much better than nothing. But if we want to just do the absolute best of the best, I mean, we're going to go transdermal. And that's why I always start women on transdermal estrogen, oral progesterone, and transdermal testosterone. And of course, DHEA and pregnenolone work great orally too. And uh, so we love that. Yeah, no, that's something that we use as well. Yeah, we well, spoke about um, the risks and uh, and you know, th that, that is something that is so misunderstood. Um, and we, when we think about what is risky for women, I mean, 400,000 women a year die of heart disease and stroke. And then the number two killer of women is osteoporosis, believe it or not. And number three is breast cancer. But we have 400,000 women a year dying from heart disease, and we have 40,000 dying from breast cancer. But breast cancer seems to be the biggest fear because, you know, it's, it's the big, bad uh, boogeyman. And, uh, and so, I, I understand that emotional fear, but you know, heart disease is really um, the number one killer of women. And so we've got to make sure that women understand that that is really a risk factor for them. Now, all of the studies prior to 2002 showed that hormones, whether, I mean, and these were traditional hormones, the ones that we say synthetic or non-bioidentical, those hormones were, 90% of the studies show that they either reduce risk of breast cancer, heart attack, stroke, uh, dementia, and, uh, colon cancer. However, after 2002, there was a study released that said that, oh, women, if you're using hormones, you're going to have an increased risk of breast cancer, heart attack, stroke, dementia, colon cancer, and you're not going to live as long. 
Hmm. <laughs> and, and and this study was uh, the most expensive study ever done. It cost billions and billions of dollars uh, to to do this study, and they had they got it wrong. Matter of fact, the researchers in that study um, over the last twenty years, it was released in two thousand two. The researchers within that study said, you know what, we got it wrong. Women actually have a reduced risk of breast cancer, heart attack, stroke, dementia, colon cancer, and they live longer, three to four years longer, if they stay on their hormones. And, and of course, they're talking about the worst hormones that we could possibly give, in my opinion, <laughs> Premarin and Premarin and Provera. Provera is a chemicalized progesterone. It's not natural progesterone. And that just upset me because millions and millions of women dropped off of their hormones. Uh, and, and of course, the biggest risk that women can have is to be on no hormones. Um, the next biggest risk is to be on the manufactured hormones that are not bioidentical. And then the lowest risk, um, according to all the studies that I've, and I can continually challenge myself on this, by the way, you know, um, is to use the compounded or the bioidentical hormones. Yeah. Now with that study that they got it wrong. Do we know what was wrong? Meaning, did they read the results improperly? Because that happens a lot. Sometimes there's a study, but they just don't come to the right conclusion because of how it's done. Do you know what it was that created this wrong information? This is going to make you mad, mm. but the lead researcher, uh, Jacques Rousseau, who is a, a South African cardiologist, he was named the lead researcher of this study. And studies are supposed to be scientific. They're supposed to say, okay, we don't know the answer. We're going to collect all this data, and then we're going to come to a conclusion. Well, after less than five years, Jacques Rousseau, who had a, a, a very public bias against hormones, he said, we got to get women off this hormone bandwagon. And uh, and so he, he took it upon himself without consulting all the other researchers in the study. He took it upon himself to release to the lay media, which you never, ever do, release the lay media who doesn't have any idea about how to interpret relative risk and absolute risk of a study. And he said, he said, we've had to stop the study. And it's because women are having a 26% increased risk of invasive breast cancer. Now that sounded horrible, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and well, 26% increased risk, that was one woman in a thousand. Matter of fact, the as they as you look at studies, if you know anything about biostatistics, which are boring to most people, <laughs> but but biostatistics say that unless the relative risk is 2.0, which is 100% increased risk, then there is no increased risk. So 26% is not even not even viable. That again is one woman in a thousand. And uh, and that has nothing to do with risk. That has to do with our lifestyle, all kinds of other stuff. Sure. Well, plus also, depending on how long the study was. We don't know, I mean, in terms of any kind of cancer, sometimes things start to brew before you can actually see it in a mammogram or in another kind of test. So it's possible she already had the start of it and they just didn't know. Exactly. That was one of the big factors brought up because breast cancer starts seven to eight years before you can see it on mammogram. Seven to eight years, which is why I like uh, thermogram, by the way. Oh, I love thermogram. I was just going to uh, mention that. Yeah, I know. I just hope that the ladies, if they're listening, they'll go get a, a thermogram uh, because thermograms can detect it years prior to uh, to the mammogram. Well, anyway. Yeah. Now, for those people who are not familiar, can you just tell my listener what a thermogram is? 
Yeah, they use an infrared camera and they look for hot spots in your body. And uh, and uh, and if a cancer is inflammatory, and so you're going to see a hot spot on the breast that um, in a they they have you undress, which is a, a little daunting, and then they look at you with this infrared camera, and uh, and. They have you in a kind of a cool room, and so you look cool all over except for areas of inflammation. Like I had, an, uh, I had a, an incident on my shins. I dropped a refrigerator on my shins one time. Oh my goodness! And and did that show up on the map on the uh, infrared scan? Absolutely, they were just bright red. You know, showing that that several years later they were still a little inflamed. Mm. <laughs> so yes, it's very accurate. Um, and and the great thing is it doesn't tell you for sure whether you have cancer or not. It tells you this is a suspicious area, get it looked at. You know? Doesn't that make sense to you? It absolutely does, right? It says that well, I think the biggest thing is right that there's inflammation and it's a change from where it was before. So a lot of it is just tracking that progress. Right. Doesn't mean you have cancer, just means you have an area of inflammation that needs uh, looking at and and oncologists uh, know that if we catch it early, we have a greater than 95% cure rate. Women don't realize that. Yeah. And unfortunately, with some of the other more traditional tests, as good as they may be, it's just hard to catch it that early. But I was uh, excited to see that uh, that the, the researchers, the other researchers in the study started uh, – releasing data as as early as uh, because the Dr. Rousseau let, released that false data in 2002 and then by uh, 2010 2012 the American Menopause Society the North North American Menopause Society the Endocrine Society um, the researchers within the the uh, study all said there is no increased risk. Women will not die early if they're on hormones. And matter of fact, they should be on hormones as long as they want to be on them. In other words, there is no five-year limit for being on hormones, which a lot of the women who are listening to this. That's so interesting. A lot of people say that. Yes. And, and that is that is a falsehood. And it was derived from that false data released in 2002 by Dr. Rousseau. So that the five-year maximum is from that same study. Well, that was that was the encapsulation that they took from that. They said, oh, if you only use the hormones for five years, you're fine. Well, gosh, as as we just said, it takes seven to eight years for breast cancer to develop. So most of the cases of breast cancer that happened in that study were actually brewing long before the study even started. Well, and I think the big thing is what your body does with the hormones. So like you said, you know, the synthetic hormones take a lot longer to process through and it would just make sense if there was possibly anything that's going to be related to that, right? Versus the bioidentical hormones that are exactly the same as our own hormones. Your body knows them. It knows what to do. So it's going to detox them better. And of course, we can do things to really promote good estrogen metabolism and detoxification. And there's ways, you know, we can test. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Dutch test or if you use other tests, but they actually look at the metabolites, the 2, the 16, the 4-hydroxyestrogen. So if someone is higher, because that's the other interesting thing, that sometimes people are not on hormones, but their estrogen metabolism can be skewed towards one of those pathways, right? And, you know, it's interesting um, that most people don't even know about um, MTHFR defect, which is uh, um, a methylation pathway of detoxification. And when women... Uh, detoxify with a good methylation pathway, then they they tend to, even if they convert to the 4-hydroxy, they can convert to a good metabolite that is not um, risky. 
if you if you actually take a little iodine, um, I take one called iodorol, which is uh, uh, 12.5 milligrams of iodine plus potassium iodide. Um, we also know that that helps convert 16-alpha-hydroxyestrone into estriol, the protective estrogen. So, you know, there are ways that we can affect metabolism. Um, I'm sure that you're familiar with DEM. Diendylmethane, which is the uh, active metabolite of uh, indole-3-carbonyl, I3C. Um, and, uh, and that actually helps you convert more to the 2-hydroxyestrone pathway, which again, uh, decreases risks. There's not a big risk at all, but anytime I can decrease the risk, I'm going to do it. Of course, absolutely. And for everyone listening, just to make sure that this makes sense, there is a couple of different tests out there. The Dutch is one of those tests. It's a urine test where you can measure in the urine, what your estrogen levels are, but also the types of estrogens that it's being metabolized into. And there's specific percentages where you want to be. The two should be the highest and four and 16 are going to be lower. And whether you are on hormones or not, if you have more of the 4-hydroxyestrogen or the 16, there are things that you can do. So looking at methylation and B vitamins, checking your homocysteine, I actually have a couple of episodes on methylation if you wanted to go back and listen to those. And then also iodine, as Jim mentioned, the only thing to be mindful of, I know so many people that are listening have Hashimoto's, iodine would be contraindicated in those instances, so you wouldn't want to do that. But DIM is a wonderful supplement. And if you're seeing that the metabolism is going in the wrong direction, DIM is going to be wonderful. So that's really, really helpful, Jim. Thank you for that. Yeah, I like I liked you talking about um, those testing mechanisms. To be honest with you, um, I, uh, I work with doctors every day, and most of them are traditional doctors. They're not all integrative uh, gurus. And so I have to speak a language that they understand. You know? And so they understand serum. They have a confidence in serum. So, so I mostly uh, do serum testing. I have my own LabCorp account, as a matter of fact. I do a lot of the testing for the docs because they said, Jim, that's, that's out of my, my wheelhouse. Would you just do the testing and then tell me, interpret what that means? And so, yes, we'll do serum because serum is is a, is absolutely um, standard of practice. Now, um, there's also you've heard about saliva testing, and I, I, saliva testing was really popular because it was less expensive. However, it doesn't do all the testing that I need whenever I'm doing hormones. And the other thing is, is that saliva testing has a propensity to overestimate what the hormone levels are. Matter of fact, when we're using a normal dose of estrogen, it's going to say it's 2,000, 3,000 times too high, which we know that is not a fact. It's just that when you use transdermal estrogen, um, it shows up in the saliva uh, at a very high level. And so therefore, when you take a saliva test, it looks inexorbitantly high. I mean, and, and it's not, that's not true. Now, when we, when we countermeasure with urine testing, and Dutch testing is uh, precision analytical labs, it, it has one called a Dutch test, which you can, it's basically urine on a stick, and then you send it in. Um, or uh, I think Rhine Labs has a very wonderful um, uh, urine test as well. Um, that tells us those metabolites, and it's pretty accurate. Um, the urine and the serum correlate pretty well. Um, urine may be a little better at telling us what the levels are if you're using uh, transdermal. Now, if you're using oral, serum is about as, as good as it can get. Um, there's no really no difference in, in the levels when you do testing as much as I do and correlate the, the serum with the urine. Um, they come out about the same. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize that depending on the types of hormones they're on, the test that they should run is going to be different. And it's so good that you're mentioning the saliva because yes, if someone's on transdermal hormones, the saliva is going to come out high. And I have seen cases where people would come to me with results and they would say, oh my gosh, what happened? I think I'm on way too much hormone. My, my doctor just did this. You know, and I said, well, wait a minute, what type of hormone are you on and what kind of test was this? So that's really, really important to know. So and just for everyone listening, really be mindful of that. But it's also good to know that if you're on oral hormones, the urine or the blood is going to be pretty much the same. And for most people, blood is going to be covered by insurance. Urine isn't typically. So if it is the same and people do have insurance, it would make sense then to run the blood to make it easier. And cheaper, right? And and uh, it's also easier to get your doctor to get on board who maybe isn't fully into integrative medicine. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a nice way to give the doctor confidence that, you know, what we're doing is working. Not only doc, do I feel better, which is a successful patient outcome, but I just feel better. But also we know that, that if we get certain levels, we know that we're probably protecting against heart disease and stroke and, and osteoporosis and breast cancer and dementia. You know, all of those things, we're, we're protecting against those. And so we're doing the best job. And there are levels that we can correlate with the protection. Therefore, serum is valuable. It's not perfect. No testing is perfect, but it's it's accessible and it's valuable. And I love the urine testing because I love to see those metabolites. So if a patient lets me do both, I'm, I'm in hog heaven. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So when you work with doctors, how do you go about it? Do you usually have a patient do their levels first to see where they are as a baseline, and then you compound the hormone based on what they need? Or do you go by symptoms, compound it, and then test them to see where they are? We almost always get a baseline because how do you know your progress totally uh, if you don't evaluate the baseline versus after you started using hormones, here's where you are now. But you know, um, I can tell you that the symptoms to me are so valuable because without the symptoms, I'm really not going to even treat a patient. When when doctors send me labs sometimes, I say, I don't know anything about this patient. Um, I can't give you recommendations until I know more about them. So I have them fill out my questionnaire that I developed. It's an online secure questionnaire inside an EMR, an electronic medical record. And uh, so I have them fill out this extensive questionnaire that gives me their medical history and their their risk factors. And it tells me their symptoms. And then I look at the labs and I go, okay, now I've got a handle on this patient. I can make decent recommendations that will be best for this patient. Great. So then you compound the hormones and then how long do they take them before they retest? Typically two to three months. I, I, at My perfect time to do is, is give them a three month supply to begin with. And then at two and a half months, I like to do the labs. And then by the time that they're out on the three month supply, then I can tell, okay, how are they doing? Because I ask them, how you feeling? You know, well, I'm feeling unbelievable, Jim. I mean, my brain is clear. I no longer have brain fog. I'm not having hot flies. I'm not having night sweats or, or if they're premenopausal. Hey, you know, my periods have gotten lighter. I'm not having PMS. Um, you know, in other words, it depends on what I'm looking for symptom wise as to whether or not um, we're successful. Sometimes we need to do some uh, dose tweaking. And uh, so that's what that three month checkup is about. And then if once we get them like we like them, then, you know, and, and acceptable both to me and to the patient, then we give them six months and we test them every six months. And then typically, because you mentioned that you like transdermal estrogen better and you feel like it's even safer, do you usually start with that? Or are there certain cases where you use oral? 
there are a few cases where I use oral, but transdermal is my number one go-to for estrogen. And I usually use a combination of estradiol, which is the most potent estrogen, and estriol, which is the most protective. Actually, both are protective, I should say. Um, I don't use estrone. Your body's making estrone on its own. I don't need to supplement that anymore. So even in menopause, your body's making estrone? Yes, it is. Matter of fact, um, uh, your body, a uh, woman's body converts DHEA. Uh, into a precursor, which then goes straight into estrone. And so the woman's body is creating estrone on its own. Also from fat tissues, there is a conversion uh, of some precursors uh, into estrone. So therefore, when we test a woman, her estradiol level is going to be in the tank if she's menopausal. However, her estrone level will still be somewhat um, up there. And so I don't want to supplement that anymore. That's why I'm going to give the estradiol, which is the most uh, powerful, most protective, along with estriol, which is most breast cancer protective, and, and have a nice little cocktail of estrogens. Now, if transdermal is not working great for that woman, which it works in more than 80% of the cases that I use. And what would make it not work? Are there any specific factors that would contribute to that? You know, everybody is a snowflake. They are, and I don't mean they're they're weird. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're individual and unique, okay? And so one size fits all does not work for me. That's why I don't like the manufactured hormones. One size fits all is not what I... I believe in. It's not my belief system for my patients. And my patients want that customized therapy. They want it to work for them. And so sometimes it's simply a matter of compliance. They're they're not uh, using our rules for applying. You have to rotate sites when you're using transdermal because the subdermal fat layer under the skin gets saturated and we call that absorption fatigue. So we have to tell them to rotate sites um, and we give them the specific sites to use the transdermals. And we almost always get successes. Now, um, if I have a failure on transdermal, I'll say, why don't we use labial? The labial tissues are like sponge tissue. They absorb the hormones so fast and so thoroughly that I hardly ever have a failure on labial. And so if I have, and we, we use a tiny, tiny amount, it may sound like, oh, I'm goofing a lot of stuff down there in my private area. But actually, when we, we use a a tiny, tiny amount of cream. We concentrate the hormones into that small amount of cream and just a small little swipe on the labia and we have fantastic hormone levels. Matter of fact, we have to reduce the dosage quite a bit when we use labial because it's absorbed so well. Mm, that's so good to know. And I bet that it probably helps with vaginal dryness and some of the other big issues that women experience as they go into menopause. Oh. And and if it doesn't, you know, we'll give it. We'll give a. Um, typically, a woman will get a some type of vaginal preparation, whether it's a small. We make miniature suppositories that that are tinier than a pencil eraser that you can insert vaginally twice a week, and that just solves the vaginal dryness issue. It also helps support the bladder, the detrusor muscle, which which. Uh, prevents urine leakage, gets tone. Therefore, we don't have that leakage when you sneeze or laugh. Um, in addition, that uh, a healthy vaginal tract decreases the risk of UTIs, urinary tract infections. Yeah, and that's such a good point. I see people get UTIs, but also a lot of bacterial vaginosis infections because when things are dry, things just kind of fester in there. So I see a lot of that as women go through perimenopause and menopause. Absolutely. When the pH goes, the pH of the vagina is very acidic. And when it goes neutral um, and, and, a, and a healthy vagina, then you're going to have bacterial vaginosis um, uh, commonly seen. 
And so but we have therapies that we can compound for that that are more effective than what is commercially available. So <laughs> compounding helps in a lot of different areas in women's health. Oh, for sure. You're probably compounding boric acid, right? And things like that. Uh, absolutely. Now, I wanted to ask you just back to risks for a second. Everything you explained makes so much sense about that study being flawed and how, you know, with the right hormones, it actually is beneficial for so many things. But what about for women who have had breast cancer and are breast cancer survivors? And, you know, they may take, let's say, tamoxifen for five years and, you know, things that actually lower their hormones. Would they be candidates for hormone replacement therapy at some point or no? Well, there's a famous doctor, Avram Blooming. He's an oncologist, uh, gynecologist, and he's probably one of the most famous oncologists for uh, breast cancer risk in America. And he wrote a book called Estrogen Matters. And uh, I highly suggest you read a book. Now, he's a traditional thinker, but he was at... Um, in uh, in February in San Antonio, which is the largest breast cancer symposium in the country, and uh, and he revealed the fact that that women who have had breast cancer and go on hormones have a reduced risk of recurrence. Did you hear me say that reduced risk of recurrence? I was going to say, please repeat that because that is not what most people hear from their doctors or is out there in the media. And, and guess what else he revealed, which most people don't know, is that when you go on tamoxifen, they did a study on women in 2003, and they they had a group of women that had all of the women had breast cancer. And so they put them all on hormones, and then part of them they did, had on tamoxifen, and part of them they had did not have on tamoxifen. Well, the group that was on tamoxifen had a 20% increased risk of recurrence than the women who were not on tamoxifen, which just goes back to the idea that maybe estrogen is not the causative factor here. Um, matter of fact, Dr. Blooming also revealed um, in his research on, on the cells of cancer, he said the cells that are reproducing in, in most breast cancers, do not have an ER positive, an estrogen receptor positive on that cell. So the cells that do not have the estrogen receptor sites are the ones most likely to proliferate to increase the spread of cancer. Now, that just shocked the pants off me. Uh, I had not ever heard that before. No. So what about the cancers that are, and forgive me, I'm not an expert on breast cancer, but you know, I know that there's specific cancers that could be more estrogen I think positive or estrogen sensitive versus others. And I apologize, I don't know the technical terms, but does that affect it? We call it we call it estrogen receptor positive. There's also PR positive, which is progesterone positive. Now, that means that they tested the tumor and they found cells that were ER positive in the breast cancer. Okay. Now, does that mean that estrogen caused that breast cancer? No. It just means that every cell in your body has estrogen-positive receptor sites. So it makes sense, as he explains, because I'm not an oncologist, but and, – and again, read the book Estrogen Matters by Avram Blooming, and he's going to explain that, that this is not exactly what we always thought, that ER-positive does not mean that estrogen was a causative factor. Hmm. Again, shocking to me. I mean, I think the detoxification of it is still probably very important. And this is where I think they're not looking as much into, you know, for those people that had breast cancer, what is their methylation? I, I agree with you. I have a huge belief system in the methylation pathway, um, it, augmenting that. Um, you can take methylation supplements as well as um, 
even knowing that you're you you have risky metabolism. Now, Jim, you have worked with so many women, and I know that you've developed some of your own protocols just from working with so many different people. So, tell us how would things differ in someone who is premenopausal, like Joe, for example, and someone that you would typically see that's already in menopause in terms of the types of hormones they would need. Most women by age 40 have already lost 80% of their progesterone levels. And that means that they're going to be progesterone deficient. We also refer to that as estrogen dominant because estrogen hangs in there. You know, um, Women's estrogen hangs on and hangs on and hangs on until menopause. And even then, it, it hangs on a few years longer. Whereas progesterone levels are dropping like a rock after, after mid-30s. And so by age 40, you've lost 80% of your progesterone, which means that you're probably going to have heavier periods. You're probably going to have PMS. You're probably going to have uh, increased risk of fibroid tumors, which are benign tumors growths in the uterus. Um, you're probably going to have increased risk of endometrial endometriosis uh, proliferation in the pelvic cavity because progesterone helps calm all of that down. It's an it's kind of the anti-estrogen. It's the balancer for estrogen. Estrogen is good. It's proliferative. It makes girls girls, but progesterone is kind of the offset for that. And so on a premenopausal gal, we're going to make sure that we have plenty of progesterone on board. And we're also going to make sure that the testosterone is okay because oftentimes testosterone starts dropping even in the 20s. You know, So we want to make sure they have good testosterone levels as well as uh, looking at their adrenals. We look at DHEA, levels and and make sure that the hormones are balanced. Because as Dr. Spiroff said in the textbook for gynecology, he said a woman can be only can be optimal if she has a balance of the actions of all of her hormones. And uh, so balance, balance, balance. You know now postmenopausally it's our same challenge. Prescribe balanced hormones. Uh, that means estriol, estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, uh, DHEA, pregnenolone. We're going to use all of those as a way to balance the hormones and make sure that it's not all about just giving estrogen because you had a hysterectomy. No, no, you still need progesterone to protect yourself against breast cancer and to sleep better and to have less anxiety and uh, less risk of clotting. You know, for instance, women on natural progesterone. How do you dose the progesterone? Because I know there's a lot of schools of thought on this, you know, especially in someone who's perimenopausal, they might still be getting their cycles. Are you cycling the progesterone sort of to mimic their natural cycle or are you doing it throughout the month? Yeah. On a patient like Jill, for instance, I would encourage to use a cycling dose of progesterone. I give a baseline of progesterone every day, uh, like 50 milligrams slow release progesterone, super micronized, which means five micron size progesterone, which makes a big difference in how it works, by the way. Um, cheap progesterone is 30 microns. doesn't work as well. Oh, wow. So it's a much bigger molecule. Oh, yes. I, I, I digress. But but the it's more expensive to get the 5 micron. But you need to ask your compounding pharmacist, am I getting 5 micron progesterone? And so we give 50 milligrams every single night. But on days 13 through 26 of her cycle, we give 100 milligrams. Now, sometimes I have to go 75 milligrams up to 150 milligrams cycling. And, uh, and that mimics the cycle. Now, there are some women who have cyclical headaches, you know, the, the migraine right before their period. And, you know, on those women, I tend to, to just use the same dose all month long, and they tend to have less cyclical headaches. And, uh, and you know, their body still is going to have its period when it wants to. Right. <laughs> now, do you find that the cyclical headaches are due to that progesterone dropping or maybe dropping too much? 
it's a combination because estrogen is a vasodilator, as we know, and uh, and then the when the progesterone's dropping, um, then we see an imbalance, and that sometimes triggers a headache. And so the two, it's a combination of the two things actually, because estrogen is, is flipping up and down, and because uh, your levels do not stay even all month long of either hormone. Um, estrogen has a peak on day 14 of your cycle when you ovulate and has another peak on day 19 um, when progesterone concurrently peaks uh, with its level. So so on a patient like Jill, I'm going to test her on day 19 to see, okay, what's the best progesterone level she has all month long? And then I'm, I'm going to go with, with that number. I'm going to say, okay, she's progesterone deficient. Her estrogen is still nice and strong. So we're going to give her progesterone. And, uh, and then I, I say, do you have headaches? No, no, I don't have cyclical headaches. So I'm going to give her the cycling therapy and, and we're going to find her best dose. And is it 50 milligrams and increasing to hundred milligrams on days 13 through 26 of her cycle? Or do we go 75 milligrams, 150, or I've even gone as high as hundred to 200. It depends on the patient. You know, we also make sure that the patient does not have PCOS, Ina. And we can look at luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, and look at the ratio of those. And if luteinizing hormone is elevated, then we know we have a PCOS case. And we can do something about that. And how do you support that typically? I know that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Well, obviously, they're going to be progesterone deficient because the follicles are not releasing progesterone. Um, so, yes, we got to get progesterone. But in addition, uh, we look at their insulin sensitivity because most of them are insulin resistant. Um, not all cases of PCOS are, but, but the overwhelming majority. So if we fix insulin resistance, uh, for instance, we have some great supplements we could talk about sometime that that are better than metformin at reducing insulin resistance. And also we get them on a healthy eating style, which you are the consummate expert on. Now, Jim, what about women who are already in menopause? So let's say they're maybe 65 and they went through menopause in you know their mid-50s and they had a lot of symptoms, the hot flashes, the vaginal dryness, the brain fog, and all of the other things that go along with it. But they were scared to go on hormones or their doctor didn't properly advise them. And, you know, maybe they became more interested in health. They started learning more. They read books. They listened to this podcast. And now it's 10 years later, they're 65. They might be feeling better than their original symptoms, right? When they first went through menopause, but they're already kind of out of that. Is it safe for them to start on hormones because it's already been maybe say 10 years or so that their body hasn't produced enough? There's a lot of data on this. And uh, because, you know, I'm looking at data because um, I trust the hormones to do the to be the best for people, you know, the bioidenticals. However, um, this is a specific case that you ask about. And I can say that that there is a, a very, very slight increased risk um, of a woman having a stroke or a heart attack uh, if she starts hormones at a later age. Now, when I say very, very slight risk, it's almost negligible. I mean, it's almost not even worth mentioning. Uh, and and believe it or not, the, the risk only exists for the first year of therapy. After one year of therapy, they say the longer a woman is on hormones, the more protected she is. And so... Um, what I do on these kind of cases is I start low. Um, I start lower than I might normally start, and I let them ease into the estrogen therapy. You can give progesterone like you normally would. You can give testosterone like you normally would. But I ease into the estrogen therapy, giving them just half doses um, for several weeks until their body has acclimated, and then I give them a full dose. And that way we don't get extreme vasodilation of the vessels in the heart, meaning the blood vessels expand. And the only time that that would be risky 
the only time that'd be risky is if the woman already had significant, significant atherosclerosis in her blood vessels. So, and most women don't, but if they did, which would be unusual at that age, but if they did, then we just need to go slow, start low, go slow. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So basically, if someone is going through menopause, it's best to work with someone to get out bioidentical hormones right away. However, if you're just learning about this and it's been a couple of years or so, then you would want to work with someone to start slow and then just making sure also that you have good detoxification and methylation so your body can process it better. That's really, really great to know. Yeah, matter of fact, we, we even started my mom on, on hormones at 80. Um, oh, wow. We restarted her hormones. Um, her doctor believed everything that we were talking about. Um, her doctor is a traditional doctor, believed everything we've talked about, believed that the study was was horribly flawed. And, uh, and so anyway, just to help her with mental clarity, to help her with strength um, and, uh, and just being able to navigate life. How did she do? spite of the fact she'd had breast cancer and she's already doing better. Mm. Her clarity has, and she's always been a sharp woman. Um, she does not have dementia, but I can tell that her energy level and her, her mental clarity have improved dramatically. Oh, that's so, so good to hear. And that's amazing that, you know, you're able to start with her again in her eighties and she's doing great. Absolutely. Jim, the big question is why is Big Pharma and why is the FDA opposed to using these compounded hormones? Because we hear a lot about this. What's going on? Yeah. And and I don't want it to sound like I'm anti-FDA because FDA has its place and is important. However, um, FDA has a, according to Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is the outgoing uh, chief of FDA, um, he spoke at one of our compounding conferences. He said, there is an anti-compounding culture in the FDA. In other words, it does not fit their business model. Their business model is to regulate manufacturers of, of drugs. That's their, that's their business model. And, uh, they're supposed to enforce, uh, Congress's FDA act, uh, and then on compounding, they're supposed to enforce the drug quality security act. And, uh, which talks about, uh, us doing a better job of compounding because there are, there are always good guys and bad guys in every industry. So yes. And so we have to protect against bad guys, but there is an anti-compounding culture in the FDA. Um, in addition, they are being pushed by big pharma uh, to uh, to eliminate us because uh, big pharma lost. Just an example, Primarin. I told you it was the number one drug in the world in 2002. They went from two billion dollars a year in sales to 800 million in one year because the results, the the release of the results of that study, and so. Big Pharma was hurt badly. And then they saw women migrating to bioidentical hormones, feeling they were safer, which they are. It was nice to see women migrating to biological hormones, but that put a big target on our back as compounders because Big Pharma was against us and FDA is against us. So um, matter of fact, in 2008, the Big Pharma uh, pushed FDA to remove estriol, one of our uh, the safe estrogens that we compound with, natural estrogen, from the market. Said it represents a significant health risk to the women of America. And this is by Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. And Wyeth Pharmaceuticals has two uh, manufactured drugs in Europe that have estriol in them. So apparently European women and American women are different because it's not dangerous for European women, <laughs> but, it's, but it's dangerous for oh America. So goodness. you can see how ludicrous this is. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. The women of America rose up 
and they said, you will not take our compounded hormones away. And they were adamant about it. And so Congress got so tired of hearing from all their women constituents that they told the FDA back off and they did. Now they're at it again. And they are now trying to remove compounded biological hormones from the marketplace. Um, they commissioned a study at National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Uh, and they, they influenced the study from before the study started. They influenced who got on the panel. And they also influenced the results findings, which is illegal, by the way. There's a law that says that if the FDA commissions a study through a, through a national entity like, like uh, uh, NASM, uh, that they cannot influence a study at all. Well, they did all the way. And we have emails proving it with, through the uh, Freedom of Information Act. And so, yes, they are against us and they want to remove your ability to take bioidentical hormones. They want to remove your doctor's ability to prescribe these hormones. That's terrible. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, do you know that they even said in the findings of the study, said doctors who prescribe bioidentical hormones are not smart enough to be able to to be able to prescribe these for their patients. It just shows that they have a lack of intelligence. And, and, and I was just thinking, and patients who want to take bioidenticals are not smart enough to determine their own uh, health. You know, and I'm just thinking, wait a second, how can you call patients and doctors stupid? You know, you can't do that. And I know you're on the forefront of the advocacy for this. What are you doing? Tell us. Well, I did testify for three hours at that. uh, And boy, it was a hostile (laughs) testimony, let me just tell you. But I held my own against it because the panel, again, was obviously anti-compounding. And so they asked a lot of hard questions, but I answered all their questions. And uh, uh, very truthfully, but they decided not to use any. I sent a ton of studies. I sent probably 100 studies proving that that bioidentical hormones and compounded bioidentical hormones are valuable for the women of America and men. And they, they refuse to even acknowledge those studies. So, so it is very obvious that the FDA um, has a bias against compounding pharmacy. And so it's up to patients and compounding pharmacists and doctors to let the FDA know and let Congress know that this is not acceptable, that they cannot limit the choice that patients and, and doctors have to use bioidentical hormones. So um, what we suggest is going to www.compounding.com and just compounding.com. It's a a website we've set up and just give a testimony because we're going to show those testimonies to Congress. When the FDA makes their move to say, okay, you can no longer compound these hormones, we're going to show these thousands and thousands of uh, testimonies. We're also going to talk to all the congressmen. We've already, as a matter of fact, I talked to them last week. I talked to two senators and, and my, my personal congressman. In addition, we hope that you will be supportive of the PR campaign to get the word out. And there, and on that website, you'll see the, the PR campaign and how valuable this is going to be to help preserve access to these hormones. So please, please, Go to that website and give a testimony if you've had a good experience with hormones and also um, support the efforts. And it, and it tells you how. We can take $5, $10, just anything to help us uh, keep this, this PR campaign active and in front of Congress and people in America to raise awareness. Oh, of course. Absolutely. And I'm going to post all of this in the show notes. Um, But again, that website for everyone listening is www.compounding.com. And, you know, some people may not be on hormones, but if you're listening, you probably know someone in your life that is on bioidentical hormones, because I know so many of you are following the functional medicine approach. And I'm sure that you've seen so much benefit from this. So, 
Jim, we all definitely want to do what we can to support your efforts and to support compounding pharmacists because we want these hormones. Because the other thing also, and this is, of course, a topic for another show, but we chatted about this before, it's not just estrogen, progesterone, right? When they're talking about taking away bioidentical hormones, we're also talking about compounded thyroid hormones. We're talking about a lot of other things. So this is a really big deal. It is. And access to these hormones are critical for millions and millions of patients in in America. They are doing well on these and we need to preserve access to those. Absolutely. Well, Jim, we are definitely going to do our part to help. I'm going to post everything in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so much for all of the information that you gave. I think that there's so much confusion about hormones and you were able to explain everything. We talked about the testing and the benefits and how some of the risks really aren't risks. And I think this is going to be helpful for so many people. Jim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it was really enjoyable talking with you. And I'm excited to talk to you again. We're actually going to be doing a show on compounded thyroid hormones. We're going to be talking about LDN and a lot of other interesting things. So I look forward to that and I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Have a great day. As you just heard, hormone changes are no joke and can cause so many different symptoms that can often mimic other imbalances and can certainly create a mystery around it. Jill saw all of the research and felt that natural hormones was the way to go for her. She wanted to feel better, but she also wanted to prevent other diseases that can come from low hormones that are often not talked about enough. So we ran a Dutch test to get her baseline, and that's a urine test for hormones, and we also did that to look at her estrogen metabolism. While her overall hormones were low, She still had some, and we were able to evaluate their pathways. For her, she was converting a bit more into the 4-hydroxyestrogen, which is not ideal, and her methylation capability was a bit on the lower end, meaning that she needed more methyl donors, such as vitamin B12 and folate, in their methylated form. Interestingly, she also had two copies of the MTHFR gene, the C667T, And what happens is that when you have that, the methylation capacity is going to be decreased because that enzyme is not working as well. So it made sense. She also had high homocysteine. Homocysteine is an inflammatory marker that is affected by methylation. Her level was 12. Ideally, you want to be between about 7 and 8. We also tested her thyroid, and while everything was in a lab range, her TSH was a bit out of the optimal range. It was at 3.5, which is a little bit on the higher end. So we had some work to do, but at least all of this made sense and was fairly straightforward when we looked at it so comprehensively. First, I gave Jill some DIM. We used DIM available from Designs for Health, one gel cap twice a day. DIM helps with conversion of estrogen so that when she's metabolizing estrogen, it's not going as much into the four pathway, but more to the two hydroxy, which is more beneficial. Then we increased her B vitamins and I gave her more folate and B12. I used the combination formula called homocysteine supreme by designs for health. And it already has the B12 and folate in really nice amounts to help homocysteine. Now, she also had an elevated beta-glucuronidase enzyme in her stool test. When beta-glucuronidase is elevated, it actually prevents the detoxification of many different compounds, certain chemicals, carcinogens, but also 
And you guessed it, estrogen. Now, the nice thing about that is there is a supplement called calcium deglucurate that actually helps to lower beta-glucuronidase enzyme. And so we use that. Um, I use one from Designs for Health called calcium deglucurate, and we used four capsules a day, one in the morning at three at bedtime. Because it helps the liver, I like to do a little bit more at bedtime because that's the time the liver is more active. Because all of these things affect estrogen metabolism, we wanted to make sure that we work on this first before considering hormones to make sure that when she does do hormones, she can properly detoxify them and they work well for her. Now, we also worked on her gut. One of the things that I find is when beta-glucuronidase is elevated, it typically means there is some overgrowth. And we did see some yeast and a few bugs in her stool test. So we took care of them with some natural antimicrobials and then supplemented with probiotics. We also worked on her foods to make sure that she's eating clean and she's balancing all of her meals. Another thing that I noticed is her DHEA was on the lower end, which is not surprising because that's very, very common as we start to get a little bit older. So we use 10 milligrams of liquid DHEA. I know 10 milligrams doesn't sound like a lot, and some people will use 25, 50, even 75. But what I find is the liquid DHEA that I use by biometrics is very potent. And because it's liposomal and you hold it under your tongue or just inside your mouth, it works really well and you don't need that much. So we dose that at five milligrams twice a day and one drop is a milligram. So we did five drops in the morning and five drops in the afternoon. And that worked really nicely to help get her levels up. Now, just from this alone, before we even started hormones, Jill started to see some improvements with her brain fog, her energy and her sleep, which was great, but we did have some more work to do. Her doctor was very open and we worked with her doctor to get her on bioidentical progesterone as well as estrogen. We used estradiol and estriol and a small dose of testosterone. Four weeks after that, Jill was feeling even better. Her hot flashes were completely gone. She felt like her memory was back and she was not foggy anymore at all. And she noticed her skin was less dry and it had more glow. We retested the Dutch in two months and saw that her estrogen metabolism was normalized and her hormones were now in the normal range for someone who is not in menopause. And this is actually something we want to see when someone is taking hormones, because even though someone's in menopause, when you take hormones, it takes you out of that. So then you would look at regular ranges for non-menopausal women to see where you fall. And it's very important that we're in that right range and that we're not too high because we certainly want to make sure that we're not getting too many hormones. We also retested her thyroid and we saw that her TSH was now down to 2.2 from 3.5 where it was earlier. And we actually didn't do anything for her thyroid. We just supported her whole body, her hormones, her gut, her food. And that actually in her case help the thyroid as well. If Jill sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and be sure that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the shows, please review the show on iTunes. It takes a couple of minutes, but I would so appreciate it. These reviews really, really help to get the podcast shown to more people so that more people can see that the answers are out there and there really is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved. 
All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.